0: Welcome to the Heights Sermon Series Podcast, where each week you'll hear a new message that'll help you with your life shaped by the Word. Well, good morning again, this time with my microphone on. Poor Mike Connor was back there scrambling, trying to figure out what was wrong, and it was all operator error on this end. But we do welcome you all out here. We thank you for being with us today. Those of, uh, of you that are in attendance here on campus and those that are listening online, we thank you for being with us as we finish up our three-week series on the prodigal. For those of you that are new to us, I'm Mike Osborne. I'm the executive pastor here. And let's go ahead and just jump right into our scripture this morning. If you will, with your Bibles or with your devices, turn to Luke chapter 15. And we're going to begin reading in verse 11. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him Anything. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The end. Close the book. That's actually what we kind of do when we think about the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? We get to this stage, to this point in the celebration of the younger son coming home. And, uh, you know, that just kind of fills us with good feelings, doesn't it? Particularly if we ourselves have experienced salvation because we kind of think back to that time when we had rebelled against the father and we repented and came and he welcomed us home and so we feel the great joy in that and our tendency might be to think about the story and think about it again and in our terms and in our time and to think well all the folks who are listening to the story they're feeling the same way we are you know, they're just gotten teary-eyed at this point over this great story of repentance and restoration, and they're just so happy about this story. Well, I'm going to tell you, at least half of the folks who were listening then in the first century were not feeling happy. They were upset over what they were hearing in this parable. Matt Chandler, who is pastor at Village Church in Texas, he said, I used to wonder why people wanted to kill Jesus. I mean, here's a guy who heals the sick and raises the dead. He said, if there's one guy you want to keep around, I would think it would be him. He said, but instead, they wanted to kill him. And I I couldn't figure it out, he said, until I read the parable of the prodigal son. He said, when I read the parable of the prodigal son, I got it. I said, this is it. This is the reason they wanted to kill him. Well, let's read the rest of the story. So we weren't through. Open up your Bibles. Verse 25 says, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came... Who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, "Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this, your son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So that's the part where the Pharisees really start getting upset with him. And why is that? Well, up to this point, they have been the audience. They've been listening to this story, talking about this son, this wayward son who dishonored his father and who went off. And at the beginning of the story, they're kind of liking it and they're enjoying it. And they don't particularly like the turn that it took at the end, but they're just the audience listening to a story. But then when we get to the part today that we're focusing on with the older son, all of a sudden they have moved from being the audience to being characters in the story. All of a sudden it's dawning on them who this older son is. Now truthfully, for many, when we look at this story and look at the older son, we don't know exactly what to do with him. I mean, who is he? Is he, you know, representing some kind of, you know, disgruntled uh, Christian who doesn't want to see people saved, doesn't like find joy in somebody's salvation? Is he a a believer who doesn't believe in evangelism and doesn't want to see that taking place? You know, who is this son? Well, as we've said, and as we're going to see, he represents the Pharisees. Let's look back to the progression Chapter 15, verse 1, we see that the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus. So the sinners are coming in close to hear what Jesus has to say. They are intrigued by his message. And they represent in the parable the younger son. And then in verse 2, it tells us that the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. And they're saying... This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so we kind of started off this chapter near the beginning with the grumbling. And now we've gone through all of this that's in the chapter and we're coming near the end and we've circled around to a grumbler, to this older brother. And so that's what's taking place here. Jesus has taken this story, this lesson, and shared all of these things he shared up to this point to get us here to the real point of the parable. The real main character in the parable is the older brother. And so he brings us here, and we're dealing with it. And so now we've got this older brother. And we need to hear what God has to say. See, we need to listen more closely and and slowly as we go through the rest of this chapter. First, look again at verse 25. It says, now his older son was in the field. And if you kind of look deeper into that story, what you discover is that everybody else had come in. Everybody else had finished for the day. You know, the work whistle had sounded. Work's over. They've come in. The the one left in the field is this older brother, this older son, the good son. We kind of seem that that is his uh, standard procedure. That's what he did. He, He got there earlier. He stayed longer. He worked harder than anybody else. Again, he's the good son. So he's out there in the field, and you can almost imagine, you know, as he's out there day in and day out working, and the neighbors are walking by, they just can't help but comment about him. You know, look, there he is, out there working again. What a good son he is. I mean, he's out there every day working so long and so hard for his dad. And then her friend who's with her goes, yeah, but what about that other son? I heard he squandered everything that he got. Yeah, I told you it was foolish for the dead to give him his stuff. But anyway, at least he's still got one good son. So the good son's at work in the fields. And when he finishes, he comes in. And it's interesting. It says, as he's coming in and drew near to the house, he heard. Music and dancing. Now, I've always thought that phrase was interesting because, you know, if you break it down into English, what he says is he heard music and he heard dancing. Now, what kind of party was going on that he could hear the dancing? They're in full swing, aren't they? They're enjoying themselves. They're having a grand time there. But the interesting thing is he has no clue what's going on. No clue about what the father's doing. See, there's no communication between the father and the older son. There's really no connection between the father and the older son. And that kind of hints at their relationship or lack thereof. So he gets there and he asks the servants I mean, all this is going on, obviously, this grand celebration. And he asks the servants, What's happening? And they tell him, they said, well, your brother's come home and your father's throwing a big celebration for him. And then look at verse 28. But he was angry and he refused to go in. He wants nothing to do with this celebration. Nothing to do with his father nothing to do with his family he says he's angry about this angry that this great party is going on but see that reflects the attitude of the pharisees in verse 2 he's upset because they're experiencing celebration And look at verse 29. He says His father's come out to speak to him and says he answered his father and said, "Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed you, never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate." Look at what he says about their relationship. He says, "I have spent all of these years serving you. Actually, the the phrase that he uses there is that kind of, of a slave. He said, I have been a slave to all of your desires. I've done everything you have ever commanded me to do. That's how he's describing their relationship. But do you see what he's saying here as he's sharing this? He's talking about where he finds his worth. He finds his worth in, as a son in what he does. In how good he is. And so he is saying to him, you know, look at all the good. I have done all this good stuff, and I deserve better than what I got. This other son, he didn't deserve anything. But I've been, all the work I've done for you. I deserve better God. His worth is built on his goodness, his righteousness, he thinks. And the Pharisees who would have been listening to this story of Jesus, they would have put themselves in that same category. They were good. They were righteous. They deserved. But see, that's a problem with that. It's a problem with that for them, a problem with that for him, and a problem with that for us, who sometimes find ourselves falling into that work righteousness. But God, I've done all this for you. It's not fair what's happening to me now. God, I've done all this for you. I deserve better than this. God, I deserve that new job, that new promotion because I've served you so faithfully. See, the problem is our righteousness is a faulty thing. Think back to verse 7 in this part of the story where they're talking about the shepherd and the lost sheep. And in verse 7, it says that God finds more joy over the one lost who was found than the 99 righteous who needed no repentance. The 99 righteous who needed no repentance. Now, to be honest with you, basically what Jesus is saying there, let's just hypothetically say that it was a group that had 99 righteous men in it who needed no repentance. Well, see, the Pharisees would have said, we're in that group. We're a part of that set of people. And the older son would have said, I'm in that group. But you see, the problem with that set of 99 righteous people who need no repentance is it is a null set. Now, mathematicians, you know what a null set is. Maybe some others don't. But a null set basically is a set that has nothing in it because nothing meets the parameters, the requirements of it. Simple example of a null set is all squares with five sides. Now, how many sides does a square have? Four. So how many squares with five sides are going to be in a set? None. It's empty. It's null. Another example is All the whole numbers greater than four and less than five. Again, nothing meets those parameters. It's a null set. And a third great example of it is 99 righteous people who need no repentance. It's a null set. It doesn't exist. We need repentance. Romans chapter 3 says... No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In Jeremiah 33, Jeremiah talks about the righteous branch of the lineage of David that's coming, talking about Jesus, and he says, He will be the Lord is our righteousness. See, our righteousness is not built on what we do and on our works. It's built on the work that God did on the cross through Jesus Christ. We are made right by him and what he did for us. You remember last week we talked about kind of the shame and honor aspect of the culture of that day, that you tried your hardest not to do anything that would be shameful, and you tried your hardest to do those things that would be honorable. And so uh, when he's sharing the part of the story, particularly the early part of the parable about the younger son, and he's talking about all the dishonorable things that he did, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have had righteous indignation over what they were hearing. How could a son act like that? How could a son do that to his father? That is so shameful. That is so dishonorable. But now we've gotten into this part of the story. And now we're looking at the good son and we're seeing the dishonorable things that he is doing. Again, look back there. When his father comes out to talk to him, he says to him, look. He doesn't even call him father. Even the son that they've been having righteous indignation about the younger son, he had the respect to call his dead father. But basically what this older son says here is, look, old man, I've done all of this for you. And I've got nothing. I didn't even get a goat. You know, when you think about this story, The younger son coming home and the father's joy and the celebration that takes place and all the guests that have come and everybody that's been invited in and all that's going on. I mean, everybody is excited that the younger son has come home except for two. The older son and the fattened calf. He wasn't happy about it either. (laughs) Well, the older son goes on to voice his complaint. We see it in verse 30. It says, But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. When this son of yours, couldn't even bring himself to say, when my brother, he wouldn't call the father, father, and he won't call his brother This son of yours. I mean, uh, that's just a really hard phrase he uses there. And basically what he's saying is, I don't want anything to do with that son of yours. He's not my brother. You can call him your son if you want, but he's not my brother. Because I wouldn't lower myself with all of my perfect righteousness. Righteousness to associate with him who's done all of these disgusting things. And so we see the attitude of this older son. Because he thinks he has done enough and been good enough and righteous enough that he's better than everybody else. Particularly better than this son who has spent his time out in the world with prostitutes. And so in this parable, we see the younger son, the younger brother in his badness. And we see the older son in his goodness, being there, serving, helping, taking care of the dead. And yet the truth of the matter is they're both lost. Neither of them have a relationship with the father in the midst of the story as it goes along. And, you know, we come to the younger son and we look at him and his sins are pretty easy to see. I mean, you leave, you go out, you throw away all your money. As his older brother says, you spend your time with prostitutes. We see his sins. It's easy to identify them. It's easy to understand he needs to repent of them. The truth of the matter is we get to the older son and it becomes a little more difficult because so many of us think that way. If I can just be good enough. If I can just be right enough. You know, when we look at the older son, he was the one that was there. He was the one who stayed. I mean, he was obedient He was devout to the Father. He was there all the time. But understand this truth. The older son was close to the Father, but not close with the Father. Physically, he was close to him. He was close by. He was right there. But relationally, spiritually, he was in the far far country you know last week we talked about as jesus was sharing how the uh, younger son had acted and how he rebelled and how he went away that probably the pharisees and the scribes were sitting there thinking all right jesus time to turn the story around and bring the hammer down on him and i think maybe in what we're reading this week the tax collectors and sinners maybe have all of a sudden thought, all right, bring it down on him instead. But the truth of the matter is, when, while Jesus surprised them with how he responded and reacted to the younger son, he surprises them again in the way he responds to the older son. You know, it, it's not often that we see tenderness towards the Pharisees in Scripture, is it? Most of the time when it comes to the Pharisees, we see things like Matthew chapter 23, where over and over again we hear the phrase, woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites. And it's verse after verse after verse in Matthew 23 where they're addressed that way. That's usually what we see. But here in this story, Jesus shows the tenderness of the Father. To the older son. First we see it in the fact that he comes out to him. When the son wouldn't come in, he came to where he was. And just as we said last week with the younger son, it's not about us coming to God, it's about the fact that God has come to us. See, in the story with the younger son, he pulls up his robes and runs to meet him. In this story, he leaves the celebration, leaves the party, and comes out to him. And it says then, the second thing, he entreats him. He appeals to him. Now, remember how the older son has described their relationship. He said, I've done everything you command. Basically saying, you always commanding me, commanding me, commanding me. And I've done it all. But Jesus says, No father doesn't work that way the father works by appealing to you and so he appeals to this older son and he has appealed to us as well in second corinthians paul as he's writing there tells us therefore we are ambassadors for christ god making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of christ be reconciled to god So just as God appealed to this older brother to come in off of the porch and come inside and enjoy the celebration, enjoy family, so he appeals to us, come and be reconciled, come and join. Again, thinking about this whole thing of shame and honor, I mentioned again last week that kind of the foundation of all of that was the commandments. And when Pastor Randy started his sermon series the other month on the Ten Commandments, he didn't actually begin with the first commandment. He began with what's called the Great Commandment. And he shared that with us. And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And there's a second love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. Yet we see this older brother doing neither. He doesn't love God who's represented by the father in the story. He doesn't love his neighbor. He doesn't love others represented by his brother. And yet he says... I follow all the commands. We see why it's a null set. So we get down here towards the end of the story and we get to verse 32. And Jesus is, I mean, uh, Jesus is explaining, as the Father, explaining why the party was taking place. Verse 32 says it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. Actually, what it actually says there, it was necessary. This kind of thing took place, and it's necessary to celebrate it. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So what comes next? Let's read on and see what the rest of the story says. Wait a minute. There's no rest to the story. Chapter 16 goes on to something else. We have come to the end this time. And why? Why did it stop right there? Stop there and we want more, don't we? We want more of the story. We need more to the storyline itself. We need need to know what happened to this older brother. We need to know about the relationship between him and his dad, between him and his younger brother. Does it get any better? Does it change? What happens? We need to know that story. And we also need there to be more, Jesus, because of story structure for that day. In that day and time, they were very particular about how they told stories because, remember, they were in an oral storytelling culture. And so they would tell a story in a way that made it easy to remember and easy to retell. And part of that was to keep it balanced. You know, However much emphasis you put on one, you put the same on the other. So as he told the story about the younger son, balance-wise, What he tells us about the older son needs to match up. You know, if you were going to tell a story and you were going to have four stanzas, four parts of the story talking about the first son, then you needed four parts, four stanzas talking about the second son. But he didn't do that. It's like we've got four stanzas about the younger son, but we've only got three stanzas about the older son. We need another stanza written. So who's going to write it? The people listening to the story. Both the people listening in the first century and those of us listening today. And that was Jesus' whole intent, whole purpose. I mean, guys, don't think for a minute that Jesus got to this point in the story and goes, "Hmm, I really didn't think about how I was going to end this. That happens making sermons sometimes, teaching lessons sometimes. (laughs) You kind of work your way through it and you go, okay, now what do I do to bring this around to the end? But Jesus doesn't do that. He had this purpose in mind. And so how do we write the stanza to finish this story? Well, you know, for those of us in our feel-good kind of nature, we would write the story something like this. The older brother repents. He and the father embrace they express their love for each other. They come back into the party. He embraces his younger brother. He tells him he forgives him. The younger brother tells the older brother he forgives him. They all begin to party and dance and have a grand time. It's just a perfect Hallmark movie ending. <laughs> Except historically and collectively, that's not what happened. In fact, John MacArthur gives us the historical ending to it, the historical final stanza. And it's this. The older brother picked up a piece of lumber and killed the father. Now we hear that. That's shocking. Man, boy, you went all the way that way, didn't you, John MacArthur? No, he went to what took place. Because God incarnate died on a piece of wood, nailed to a cross because the religious leaders wouldn't hear his message, wouldn't accept his grace. They wanted him dead. That's what happened collectively, historically. But the other part of this is how do we finish it personally? And individually, what do we do with this story in our lives? The Pharisees are standing there and they're much like the older brother. They're standing on the porch, standing on the outside, and won't come in. But what Jesus is trying to get them to see is the opportunity is there for them. To come in and join the celebration. That they can choose to repent. They can choose to not trust on their own righteousness, but to trust God. But He also leaves it open for us. Today, the 21st century, He leaves it open for us to write the ending to the story in our lives. Whether you're here today and you're a younger son who has rebelled and turned away from the Father, Jesus says you can come home. You can repent of your sins, repent of your badness, Trust in God and come home. But he says, if you're the older brother, maybe it's like Tim Keller says, some of us need to repent of our reason for our goodness. See, the older brother's problem was he was trusting in his goodness, but his goodness was only being done to see what he could get out of it. He wasn't doing it out of love for the Father. He wasn't doing it because of his relationship with the Father. He was doing it because he thought it would give him what he deserved. That was his reason for his goodness. And there's some of you sitting in this room and some of you listening at home who you need to repent of your goodness. You too need to stop trusting in your righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Trust him. Jesus says to us, come in off the porch, guys. Join the celebration. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your amazing love, for your awesome grace. The fact, Lord, that you could love us while we're still rebelling, that you could love us, Lord, when we're trying to live off of our own righteousness and, Lord, getting caught up in that empty set. But, Father, you sent your Son to die on the cross. To pay the price for our sins, whether it's our sins of badness or our sins of goodness. And you've called us home. And Father, we thank you and praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.